Good morning. Would you bow with me and let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for the privilege of coming before you. What a name, Jesus. We marvel, we worship, we honor, we exalt you that you have given us your son who went to the cross and died for our sins in our place that the moment we believe we might find life forgiveness, wholeness, significance, meaning, purpose, and security, and all because of what you have done for us in this amazing, this omnipotent name, Jesus Christ. And we come before you and we ask that you would draw us closer and closer to you. This morning we want to pray for our students among us as they get ready to go back to school and ask that you will give them a wonderful year in Jesus Christ, that you will bless them and prosper them in the fullest sense of the term for our children, for our junior high, high school, college students, for adults that are taking classes and continuing education. We pray that these months will be rich. This will be a a good semester, a good fall, and we ask God that Jesus would be lifted up. We pray for our students that you would give them a boldness on their campuses. We ask that you would do that in our lives, in our neighborhoods, or where we work, or in the different areas that we find ourselves. We want to see Jesus lifted up. And we know, God, it's not an issue of our power. It's the power of your Son who's been raised from the dead. The power of the Spirit resident in us. And so we worship you. And we exalt you. And we pray in Jesus' great name, amen. Hey, it's my privilege to be with you. It's been a while since I've been here. That's my fault. But I, I, I want you to know I hear about you guys all the time. Will loves, Chad, everybody loves to talk up Tri Village and tell us that you are by far the most important, the most wonderful church in the existence of the history of the church. That's 2,000 years and running. You know how Will is, Rabbi, now I'm not just saying this, I'm serious that you guys are the best. So having said that, I just want to say it's my uh, great honor to, to be here with you this morning. Earlier this week, I got back from Europe, I actually got back from Germany. I was speaking at a missions conference in Frankfurt on how Europeans can reach Europe for Christ, how we together can reach Europe for Christ. Now, I don't know how much you know about what's going on in Europe right now, but Europe has been for centuries a spiritual wasteland. The number of believers as a percent of the population makes Europe the least reached continent in the world. So ministry, church planting, Seeing people come to Christ is slow and tedious. And you can be a, a missionary or a deeply committed follower of Jesus Christ in Sweden or Poland or in Rome and wonder, am I really making any difference? Now, maybe that's how you feel in your neighborhood, or maybe that's how you feel this morning with your family, your extended family. Or at work, am I I making any difference, God? 
So this morning, as we get started, I want to share with you uh, uh, just two stories from this uh, conference that I stumbled into that I have become aware of in order to encourage you because God is always at work because the name of Jesus is so powerful. The Greek island of Lesbos isn't a particularly big island, but it's a strategic island because it's just two or three miles from Turkey. And refugees that are fleeing the Middle East, fleeing North Africa, arrive regularly on the island of Lesbos in rubber rafts and rubber boats. You've seen the pictures. When they arrive, uh, they end up in refugee camps on the island of Lesbos. Many of these refugees are fleeing bombing, fleeing persecution, Some of them have lost a hand. Some of them have lost an eye. They have lost loved ones often. And many are coming to Lesbos with nothing but the clothes they're wearing. 99.9% of them are Muslims. And they're fleeing for their lives. Wheaton Bible Church and all of us, because TVC is a part of Wheaton Bible Church, had the privilege a couple of years ago to send two fantastic young couples to this Greek island, the island of Lesbos, to serve as full-time missionaries ministering to these Muslim refugees in and outside the refugee camps. And last week, while I was in Germany, I had breakfast with one, Rhonda and I, my wife and I, had breakfast with one of these young couples Couples, Josh and Melanie Zimmerman, some of you may know them. And at breakfast, they said, you know, it's just been incredible. We've been here for a couple years now. But what's amazing is in the last year, we have seen 100 Muslim refugees come to Christ. 95 of them have been baptized. Yeah, praise God. And God is using uh, these uh, uh, two couples in just amazing ways. And boy, is it difficult. Boy, is the burnout always right there. I mean, they are at kind of the uh, tip of the spear when it comes to human need and human suffering. Uh, There are 65 million refugees, displaced people around the world right now. And it's been so cool to see that God is working. God is building this church. Sammy is story number two. Sammy's not his real name. I got to know Sammy last week in in Germany. Sammy was a leading Muslim cleric in Europe. And I'm actually in saying that, understating it. But that's all I really can say publicly. He was an advisor to governments. And he was, by his own admission, radicalized. But a couple of years ago, God supernaturally intervened and Sammy came to Jesus. And it cost him so much. His Muslim wife immediately divorced him. Denied access to the kids. And Sammy, for the last couple of years, has been living under death threats. Death threats, that's how that goes. And as Sammy and I had lunch, we had a a couple meals together uh, over the last uh, 10 days. Uh, He said to me, you know, I I can't explain it, but the Holy Spirit has given me this unbelievable courage, this unbelievable relentlessness, and I have had the privilege, and get this, 
and this is Sammy speaking, I've had the privilege of seeing 700, over 750 Muslims come to Christ in Europe over the last couple of years. Now, I, I, I say that to say Christianity is a supernatural religion born in suffering. The suffering of our precious Savior, Jesus Christ. So if you know Jesus, you should expect both. The supernatural and suffering. And today I want to talk about that. I want to talk about the identity behind that. Our, 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 our framework, the way we think. Because I want to explore this question. What is it that makes these two young couples, what is it that makes Sammy tick in the middle of the noise, in the middle of the difficulty, in the middle of the exhaustion? What do they know that you and I need to know? Not so that we can all move to Europe. That's not the point. But so that we can be all that God wants us to be wherever we are, whatever we are doing here in the suburbs or the city of Chicago. And to answer that question or really those questions, I want to look for starters at one sentence in Genesis chapter 23. As Carol mentioned a minute ago, we are in this series, we are actually concluding this series that we've been preaching through this summer on the life of Abraham. And today we come to this sentence, one sentence, something Abraham says about himself, that if we get it, if we press it, into our hearts as believers in Christ. And that's how the truth changes us, by the way. When we press it into our hearts and our minds, then this truth liberates us. Those that you and I, here we are in Chicago, whatever we're doing, wherever we are, we can be kingdom difference makers. And boy, do I want that for you guys. And I don't want it nearly as much as the spirit of the living God wants it. So stand with me and we're going to begin reading in Genesis chapter 23 and verse 1. Sarah, Sarah's Abraham's wife, lived to be 127 years old. She died in Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went to mourn for Sarah and to weep over her. Then Abraham rose from beside his dead wife and spoke to the Hittites. He said, I am a foreigner and a stranger among you. Sell me some property for a burial site here so that I can bury my dead. The Hittites replied to Abraham, Sir, listen to us. You are a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choices of our tombs. None of us will refuse you his tomb for burying your dead. Then Abraham rose and bowed down before the people of the land, the Hittites. He said to them, If you are willing to let me bury my dead, then listen to me and intercede with Ephron, son of Zorah, on my behalf, so he will sell me the cave of Machpelah which belongs to him and is at the end of his field. Ask him to sell it to me for the full price as a burial site among you. And that's exactly what happens in the rest of the chapter. You may be seated. Now this is 4,000 years ago, right? I mean, Abraham lived about 2000 B.C. It helps me to think Abraham was 2000 B.C., Moses 1500, and David 1000 B.C. 
So we're talking for a cool 4,000 years ago. And in verse 1, we are told that Sarah lived to be 127 years old. Which, interestingly enough, by the way, makes Sarah the only woman in the Bible whose age at death is given. Demonstrating how important she is as the mother of Israel. But this passage isn't really about Sarah's uh, death. This passage is about Abraham. He's facing a crisis. He has no place to bury Sarah. Abraham making the first property purchase in the promised land. And really the only property purchase. Because God has promised this land to Abraham and to Abraham's descendants. And Abraham believes that. So this is a remarkable step of faith on Abraham's part. Knowing that God will eventually give Abraham or his descendants this land. Actually that doesn't happen for another 600 years. Abraham acts in faith and buys this burial plot. He buries Sarah there. Abraham himself is buried there as well as their son Isaac and Rebekah and Leah are all buried there. Just in this cave, just outside of Hebron. Now, I've been there. This is one of the most contested areas in all of Israel, modern Israel today. And the site that uh, 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 alleges it's above the cave, interestingly enough, is inside an Islamic mosque. And you go there, and you are surrounded by soldiers. And for years now, many of us have not even been able to get into Hebron. But I, but I say this because I want you to know that historians, archaeologists think with some degree of certainty as these things go, that this may exactly be the place. Now here's what's significant. 4,000 years later, this is the most sacred site in all of Judaism next to the Wailing Wall. And boy, is it tense in this area today. But what's key for us is what Abraham says about himself in verse 4. When speaking to the Hittites, he says, I am a foreigner and I am a stranger among you. Now, on the one hand, Abraham is stating the obvious. It's, it's no big deal. Of course he's a, a foreigner. He's been living in the land now for uh, 62 years by the time we get to Genesis chapter 23. He's a Bedouin. He's been living in tents. He, he can't own any land. The Hittites and other nations that have been there for generations before him, they're the possessors of the land. So when he says, I'm a foreigner and a stranger, he's stating again uh, the obvious. But on the other hand, this is a huge deal. It's a huge statement. Because the New Testament picks up Abraham's language and tells us that when you as a follower of Jesus Christ see yourself as a spiritual foreigner and stranger as you live here on earth, you are on to what it means to be a Christian. And to see yourself as an exile, to see yourself as a foreigner, to see yourself as a stranger unlocks the door 
to your identity as a believer in Christ, your, your mission as a believer in Christ, and how you and I are to relate to culture, to relate to the world, to the, to the people around us. And I can tell you, based on personal experience, that these two young couples in Lesbos and Sammy, this renowned leader, who God is using in extraordinary ways, understand at the depths of their being that they are exiles that they are foreigners, and all of us are. Now let me illustrate the importance of this from the New Testament. In 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 1, Peter is addressing his book to believers. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles. He's telling us as believers uh, that we are exiles. To be a, a Christian is to be chosen by God and a spiritual stranger on earth. We're exiles. Uh, uh, to, be, to be a Christian is to be elect by God and an exile for God. As a matter of fact, this is so important. And in the very next chapter, in chapter 2 and verse 11, uh, Peter says, I urge you as foreigners and aliens. In other words, Peter is saying to these believers, he is saying to us, you are Abraham. Abraham is you. Abraham is a metaphor for what it means to be a Christian. He's a metaphor for what it means to be Jesus Christ. I'll come back to that at the end. But he's a metaphor for what it means to be a Christian. What does it mean for me to be a Christian? It means that before the Lord, wherever I am, whatever culture I'm living in, I understand that fundamentally I am in exile. And it is a key, men and women, it is a key, you students, to spiritual greatness. So what does it mean? Well, when you take the language of this sentence in verse 4 of Genesis 23 and couple it with the language of uh, 1 Peter, the uh, two incidences where we have this terminology, um, what we discover is uh, this is referring to a particular type of person, what we call a resident alien. Now, on the one hand, a resident alien is not a tourist. Tourists are in a land temporarily. On the other hand, a resident alien isn't a native. A resident alien is a foreigner from a different country with different beliefs, different values, different practices than the country he or she is currently living in. So to be a Christian means you fit, but you don't fit. You're a part of culture, but you're different than culture. Because your allegiance is to the king of kings. To our heavenly king. And your beliefs and your values and your practices are, are shaped by who? By Jesus. So when you see yourself as an exile, Rob, I'm an exile. When you see yourself on, on your campus or in your neighborhood, your apartment complex, or, or where you work as an exile, it, it clarifies your mission, your identity, and your role. Because you know 
you are not home yet. You are on your way home. But you're not home yet. You know you don't fit because you serve a different king. You know your friends, your work, your performance, your successes, your circumstances don't define you because Jesus defines you. And you know your mission isn't to just be comfortable and go with the flow and to do whatever culture tells you to do, to value whatever culture tells you to value because you serve a different king. We're exiles. This is one of the most liberating truths in the Bible for us as believers in Christ. Now, yes, it is true. The moment you believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, Jesus forgives you. Jesus adopts you. Uh, Jesus adopts you as a son or daughter. Blesses you with every spiritual blessing. All the privileges of being a a child of the uh, king of kings. But please understand this world is not your home. It never will be. And when you understand that, not only does it change your mission and your identity and uh, your understanding of your role, it clarifies your expectations. Because you are not surprised by disappointment. You're not surprised that you feel out of sorts. You're not surprised by this tension, I fit but I don't fit. You're not surprised by rejection. You're not surprised by heartache. You're not surprised by tragedy. You know you live in a sinful, fallen world and you will battle each and every day of your life the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so you don't try to satisfy the deepest longings of your heart by anything in this world but only in Jesus Christ because you are, have been created in the image of God, redeemed by the Son of God, filled with the Spirit of God, and you are wonderfully different. You fit, but you don't fit. You are a child of the King. And so when we face difficulty, man, we weather it. Let me show you this. I'm going to go back to 1 Peter and 1 Peter chapter 4. And I'm going to read a couple of verses here, but the first couple of these verses I have memorized, and they're part of a package of verses that I regularly quote to myself almost every single day of my entire life to kind of set the frame for how God wants me to view myself, how he wants me to view him, how he wants me to live my life. So look at what Peter says to the people he earlier addressed as exiles, dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come upon you. Why in the world are you surprised? Why are you surprised when you get a flat tire? Or the lawnmower won't start. Or you get sick. My first wife died of cancer. I've been diagnosed with cancer. I mean, why are we surprised? Do not be surprised at the fire ordeals that have come upon you to test you. God is using them. Don't be surprised. They're designed to test you. Um, and he goes on as though some strange thing were happening to you. Why do you get so weirded? Why do you get so whacked out? But rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of, of Jesus Christ. And here we begin to see what it means, what the cost is to live as an exile, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because you are a stranger or a foreigner, 
Because of the name of Christ, you are blessed where the spirit of glory and God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not, do not be ashamed. But praise God that you bear that name. Do you see what Peter is saying? Peter is saying this is an expectation thing. Life will not be easy. We are not home. We should not expect it to be easy. Peter is telling us our significance, our security, our, our protection, our, our peace isn't a horizontal thing. It's not a circumstantial thing. It's a vertical thing. It's who we are in Jesus, what he has won for us. And hear me in this. The reason the church of Jesus Christ is so anemic in the United States today is because we are so comfortable as Christians in the United States. And the reason we are so comfortable is we have forgotten that we are exiles. So we think we're home. Are we home? No. We're not home. We fit, but we don't fit. Now, let me tease this out. Let, let me help you with applying this to your life as I struggle to apply this to my own life. And to do that, I want to fast forward 1,500 years in Israel's history. And I want to move from the book of Genesis to the book of Jeremiah. In Genesis, Israel is being born. In the prophecy of Jeremiah, Israel is dying. The great superpower, the evil empire, the Babylonian kingdom is swept in finally and completely destroyed and conquered uh, Israel. Israel as a nation no longer exists. Jerusalem has been leveled. It's one of the worst moments in the history of the nation of Israel. And the Jews that are still alive, the small remnant, have been carried into exile into Babylon. We call it the Babylonian captivity. And every single Jew now living in Babylonia, as I just said, is an exile. And God speaks to Israel in the moment, in, in the agony, in the angst of being an exile in Jeremiah chapter 29. And I want you to see what God says to the nation. Because in these words, I find three tests that we can use as a sort of self-assessment to determine how we're doing in living an exilic life. How we're doing in applying, I mean functionally applying, whether or not we really are living as exiles. So I'm going to go to Jeremiah chapter 29 now, and I'm going to pick it up in verse 4. I, I, uh, uh, honestly, this is one of my favorite passages in the Old Testament. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Now notice who did the carrying. It was God. This is God's plan. And here's the command. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage. Now this is within Israel. This is Jew to Jew. So that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease also. Now fasten your seatbelt. 
Seek the peace and the prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it. Because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Test number one. Do you as a follower of Jesus Christ wisely, intentionally engage the culture around you? And by engage, I mean, do you intentionally connect? Do you participate? Do you serve in the school you attend or, or, or where you work in the, in the neighborhood you live in? The question is, are you involved or are you isolated? Now, this is verse 5. You understand, don't you, that Babylon could not have been a more hostile environment for these Jews to live in. I mean, this was one of the most decadent, ungodly cultures in human history. But God doesn't say to the Jews living in Babylon, withdraw. He doesn't say isolate. He does not say condemn. He does not say become hostile toward. He says, settle in. He says, build, plant, build relationships, become a good neighbor, become a good co-worker. Get to know the, the people around you. And so, brothers and sisters, I wonder this morning, do you intentionally engage in meaningful ways? Or are you just too critical? Josh and Molly Zimmerman, this young couple in, in Lesvos, uh, were uh, uh, telling us that one of the primary tools God has used to, uh, so that these Muslims have, have come to Christ is, are you ready for this? Tea. They go into the refugee camps and invite these Muslim refugees to come out to the community center and have tea with them. And so the refugees, some of the refugees come out. Some are suspicious and will never do it. But some come out and as they have these scheduled teas, they mention, oh, you know, we're going to have a Bible study. Would any of you be interested in coming back for a Bible study? And T becomes a bridge that connects to the gospel. What is your T? What is your bridge? What are your bridges that you are using, that you can uniquely use, that no one else can use, so that you connect with people that don't know Jesus Christ? Who are you connecting with? How are you connecting? How are you engaging? Now, Rhonda and I have seven adult kids, which is too many. Way too many. We lost our first two spouses to cancer. We've been married now about uh, 12 years. And we have these seven adult kids. Six of the seven are married. We have seven grandkids. And it's just chaos. It's just, it's just uh, too much. But 
our youngest, my youngest son uh, Ryan is Ryan, and Ryan is married to Taylor, and they live in Atlanta. And over the last couple of months, uh, they've really been working hard to develop uh, relationships with Chinese families that live in their apartment complex in Atlanta. And a couple of days ago, Ryan and I were uh, talking, and he said something that really struck me. He said, Dad, Taylor and I really want to get to know people that are different than us. And to do that, we have to be intentional. And so I'm going to ask you again, how are you intentional in connecting in the spheres, in the circles of relationships God, the Holy Spirit, has given you? Are you reaching out at your school? Or maybe it's at work. You're getting together for meals. You're inviting people into your homes. You're just talking to people. Talking, like, like Sammy, the Muslim cleric, talks to people on the streets all the time. Let me go on to the second test. Do you unwisely compromise with culture? It's one thing to engage, it's another thing to be compromised by. It's not an either or, it's a both and. We engage, but we don't compromise. So let's go back to uh, uh, Jeremiah 29, and let me continue reading. I'm going to pick it up in verse 10. This is what the Lord says, When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. And here we have one of the great promises in the Bible. Many of you have memorized this. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. These are incredible promises God is making to the nation. But they assume one thing. They assume Israel's identity as the people of God will not be compromised. The promises assume that Israel will not worship the Babylonian gods and goddesses. That they will not bow the knee to the cultural uh, idols. That they will not embrace the spiritual values of Babylon. That they will not engage in the spiritual uh, practices. Uh, they are engaged, but they do not compromise. When we as Christians, I'm going to state this generally, when we as Christians withdraw from culture, we lose our audience. And we can be perceived as spiritual porcupines. When we compromise with culture, we lose our distinctives and we become spiritual chameleons. And let me take this a step further. So I want you to look at this verse. I'm going back to 1 Peter. I'm going back and forth between these great passages, and I want you to see one verse in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 12, and again, here Peter is writing to these exiles, right? And look what he says. I just, I, I, I love this. He says, you exiles live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Now, I could preach a whole message on this, but I want to say two things. Peter is saying two things. First of all, it isn't your shallowness. It's the depth of your spiritual life. 
that gives you a platform. It isn't the superficiality of our Christian experience in a culture which hearkens us to be superficial, but it's the way you press the truth of God's word into your heart, into your mind, in all areas of your life. It's your overriding passion for Jesus that's above and transcends all other passions in your life. It's your joy, it's your confidence, it's your peace, it's your serenity in good times and bad times that non-Christians are attracted to. And this is what Peter means at the beginning of verse 12 when he says, live such good lives. Such good lives. He isn't just talking about good deeds. He's talking about the smile on your face at work. He's talking about the words that come out of your mouth. He's talking about your heart and what you're known for and how people view you. When Peter says live such good lives, he is saying it's your prayer life, it's your devotional life, it's your spiritual life that gives you a platform that the Holy Spirit uses. But then he says something else in the second part of verse 12 that's just crazy cool. He says, on the one hand, some people will accuse you. On the other hand, other people will see your good words, good deeds, good words, and glorify God on the day he visits us. Some commentators think that means when they come to Christ. So on the one hand, because we are exiles, some people will reject us. Some people will disdain us. Oh, you're a Christian? Some people will accuse you. Some people will be hostile toward you. They'll completely turn their back on you. But other people will value you. They will be curious about what's going on inside. And they will want to know more. And God the Holy Spirit will use you and draw them to them, to Christ. So to be in exile means at the same time, you will be both offensive and attractive. You fit, but you don't fit. Now, I brought a book with me that I didn't bring up here, but it's right over there on my chair by one of my favorite authors. I mean, a lot of us on the ministry staff here uh, love uh, this author. His name is Paul Tripp, Dr. Paul Tripp. We've had him speak at Wheaton Bible Church. He's just a wonderful giant of a man. I, read, I try to read everything he's written, and he's written this book. This one book is called The Dangerous Calling. It's about the, the difficulty and, and the importance of uh, full-time Christian ministry, and, and it's about how um, hard it can be and how important it is uh, to walk with Jesus Christ. And on the back of that book, there are five endorsements from five Christian leaders. And it was written five or six years ago. Three of those five leaders have fallen. And just in the last five or six years. Sexual immorality, apostasy, and pride. God is assuming Israel will not compromise. 
If these pastors, these Christian leaders can be compromised, any of us can be compromised. We must give ourselves to standing true, to pressing the truth of God's word into our lives so we are not compromised. The path to disobedience starts with small steps. The door of destruction swings on the hinges of small disobedience. We reserve sex for marriage, regardless of our culture. We believe all people are made in the image of God. We value them. We are careful with what we watch, the websites we go to, what we do with our weekends, what we do with our time, our talents, and uh, uh, our money. Uh, because we fit, but we don't fit. We're exiles. So we engage, but we do not compromise. We live holy lives. All right, let me go on and give you the third test. And, and I am praying that you will take these to heart. So the third test here is do you seek the goodwill of others? And let me add, do, do you do that from the heart? Now, I'm going to go back to Jeremiah chapter 29. We're going to look at verse 7, my favorite verse in this favorite section of mine. And we read also, God is speaking, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. This makes no sense. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. God is saying to Israel, seek the peace and prosperity of your greatest enemies. So, let me back that off and ask you the question. Do you seek the prosperity and the peace of Streamwood? Of Carol Stream? Of Chicago? Of where you work? The company that employs you? Uh, uh, the school you attend? The, the, the apartment complex you live in? This language, do you pray for them? For these institutions. The language here is describing our heart. You seek the peace and prosperity. Uh, because you live out of your heart. And peace and prosperity comes from the one Hebrew word shalom. Which means uh, well-being, wholeness. Now you and I cannot, um, apart from divine intervention, impact uh, the entirety of the city of Chicago. But we can impact some people that live around us. You can't, we probably can't do the millions, but we can do the fives and the tens. And so for some of you, this is going to be adoption. Uh, for uh, some of you, it means you're going to sit on a school board, or you're going to run for office, or uh, you're going to invite people, as I mentioned a little while ago, into a Bible study, uh, uh, people in your lives, uh, people that you work with. You're going to find running partners. You're going to do this. You're going to do that. You're going to find the ways to connect. Uh, you're going to serve the tea. My um, middle daughter, Kyle, almost died in childbirth. 
She came as close to death as medically possible. She lost 110% of her blood in labor and delivery. And she's fine. And Elliot, our little grandson, is fine. But Kyle will never be able to have another bio kid. So Kyle and her husband, Eric, and they live uh, in Long Beach, California, in L.A. County, have given themselves to taking in foster babies. And over the last uh, three or four years, they've taken in 10 to 12 foster babies. Every single baby they've taken in, they've taken in with a view to adopting. But in the providence of God, it hasn't worked out. I'm talking every ethnic group. I'm talking every horrible situation uh, you can imagine. Because my daughter knows she can't reach every needy family in Los Angeles County. But she can seek the peace and the prosperity. And provide safety for some. Are you? What are we going to do? Do we live our lives understanding, God, before you, I'm an exile. So I engage, but I don't compromise. And I give myself, my disposition is to seek the peace and the prosperity of the people around me. And boy, do I pray. Men and women, if this is anything, this is a call to arms. Spiritual arms. Now, let me conclude by saying... Uh, we aren't up for this ourselves. We lack the power to carry this off. I lack the power, even as a senior pastor, to live as an exile in and of myself. We need help. We need a savior. This power doesn't come from us, but from looking away. And fixing our eyes on Jesus. Because to the extent we see Jesus and the wonder of the gospel. And continually and daily apply Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection to our lives. And we see it as beautiful and amazing. Then you know what it does? It melts our hearts. And it gives us a compassion. And a courage and a relentlessness. But the power doesn't come from within. The power... Power comes as we look away. And as we study Jesus, the Spirit fills us. I mean, think about it. Didn't Jesus leave heaven and become the ultimate exile for you? Do you get that? Jesus became the ultimate exile for you. When Jesus died on the cross, didn't he take with him on the cross the exile you deserved? So that he was exiled from the Father. So that the moment you believe, you might find acceptance, forgiveness, and eternal life. When you are tempted to condemn, when you are condemned to reject, when you are tempted uh, to withdraw, when you are tempted to press that button or go to that side and, and compromise, man, see the nails in Jesus' hands, brothers and sisters. Look to him. Because it's in seeing and believing and basking in his big death 
that the Spirit gives you the ability to face the little deaths that are part of what it means to be in exile. You and I fit, but we don't fit. But the Holy Spirit is going to do incredible things in our lives. A pastor, and I'll conclude with this, was flying on an airplane. The airplane hit major turbulence. Have you been on a plane when it drops? I mean, it's just awful. You're convinced in a nanosecond you're dead. And so this pastor, in spite of being a pastor, was panicked. He was scared to death. So was everybody on the plane. But he looked ahead across the aisle in a row or two up. There's this little 11-year-old girl. She's got her headphones on, and man, she's just swaying and smiling and completely oblivious to what's going on. The plane lands, a pastor walks up to her and says, why weren't you afraid? And she said, oh, my daddy's the pilot. <laughs> and he's taken me home. Jesus is your pilot, and he is taking you home. Let me say it this way. He was exiled to bring you home. And in looking to him, you can handle the turbulence and the difficulty by the power of the Spirit. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. So, Father, I thank you for these Men and women, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the privilege of being your children who are strangers and foreigners and exiles, knowing that you, God, have an incredible plan for us. And we ask that you would forgive us for our anger and our hostility, that you would forgive us for this tendency we have to withdraw. And you would use us, would you use Tri-Village, God, in extraordinary ways to seek the peace and the prosperity of the people around us. Amen.